0: Let's open up God's Word this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 4 where we pick up where we left off last week and we will conclude chapter 4 today. I want to thank you for your worship and for being here, and uh, what a joy it is to hear you sing over me uh, as I get to sit in the front and to see your smiling faces. And uh, many of you have been returning over the past uh, few weeks, and we haven't seen in in over a year, and we're grateful for that, uh, as well as all the new guests and visitors uh, that we have. As Karen said earlier, we are partaking of the Lord's Supper, so I want to remind you to to make sure you find your cup here uh, and kind of keep that handy uh, to you as we begin to partake upon the that in a worshipful way and in uh, as a least disruptful way as we possibly can. I want to begin by reading verses 12 and 13 for us, if you'd follow along with me, where this is God's word for us today. He says, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would speak to us and change us according to your word and not our own ways. We ask these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen. Last week, our city hosted uh, an annual event that they put on the Fort Worth Cowtown Marathon. I don't know if uh, some of you did run in it. Uh, Some of you avoid it like the plague. Uh, Maybe you like running. Maybe you don't. Maybe you have the knees for it and the will for it. Maybe you don't have the knees or the will for it, and that's okay. Okay. But marathons are an interesting thing, 26.2 miles. It's a long way to run. If you've ever run one, they are certainly difficult and challenging and take months and weeks to prepare and to, to get ready for. Well, in the text this morning, we have an instance of a man who was running from battle, in essence running a marathon, if you will. But the beginning part of, of the, the nexus and the genesis of a marathon began all the way back in Athens, Greece. Some of you are familiar with the story. It was a young man by the name of Philippides who was a professional runner for the Greek army. And Philippides would, was running about 150 miles one particular day as Persia invaded Greece. Greece. And he set off to go get help from the Spartans, and so for a day and a half straight, he ran 75 miles one direction and 75 miles back the other. And he began to watch a battle that took place on what was known as Marathon, Greece. And as they began to win and the Persians began to lose, he took off back to Athens to relay to his commanding officers and to the government officials that they had just won where he ran about 40 kilometers or 25 miles miles. And so in the course of about two days, this man ran about 175 miles. But the way the story goes, at the end of the the last little run, the 25-mile run, it is said that he killed over and ultimately died. And hence, when we run marathons, when we do those things, in essence, we seek to honor that man, Philippides, who really began the idea of long-distance running. Every time I hear that story, I, I can't help but always think, couldn't there have been someone with the good sense enough to get that man a horse? Why he had to run and why he had to walk all of those miles, I do not know, but here in verse 12 of 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see a similar instance where a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line. That tribe of Benjamin should be familiar to you because what we will later see is that King Saul ultimately comes from the tribe of Benjamin and the Apostle Paul was one who descended from the line of Benjamin. But here in this moment, this man runs from battle and he comes to Shiloh the same day and I want you to notice in the text where it says, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. I didn't get very far this week as I studied and I began to wrestle with just that phrase right there and why would the author begin to make note of the idea that this man described in this way with torn clothes and dirt on his head and I think ultimately the answer lies in to communicate and paint this vivid picture of a man who was diligently working and was diligently laboring in the way that he was supposed to be laboring. And I couldn't help but think Of many of you over the past year and a half and over the past five years and even the past decade who have sought to labor and who have come to this church and you've seen battles and your clothes have been worn and you've got blood on your forehead and sweat on your cheeks and your clothes are tattered, your your spirit perhaps feels a a certain way and you've engaged. And yet at the same time, perhaps it's true of many of us. That maybe it wouldn't be true of us in describing our work for the Lord running from the battle. We, we have not had torn clothes and we have not had dirt on our head. My challenge to some of my brothers and sisters this morning, as many of you come back and as many as you get a, reacquainted with our church, many of you will find that our church is quite different than it was when, when you left. Some things are certainly the same, but many things are certainly different. The people are different. You are different. And if there was ever a time as a people of God to engage one another and understand that that the people are the mission that God has called us to and being in relationships with one another, we recognize that relationships are difficult things and oftentimes relationships will tear our clothes and, and they'll put dirt on our head because people at times can be hard and difficult. But friend, can I remind us this morning ever so gently and pastorally that it is those difficult people It is those people that live in the margins of this culture and in this church and and in this city that they are the ones that are our mission, that our mission has not stopped. In fact, it is ramping up once again as we continue to do the work which the Lord God has called us to. But the text goes on in verse 13, and he says, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching. I find this peculiar because this is not the first instance in which we've seen the text describe the the priest and and the prophet Eli, the intercessor and the mediator between God's people and God. We find him sitting in a posture of rest, not laboring, not working, not caring, not shepherding. There he is once again just sitting. Perhaps Eli's countenance would be characteristic of some of us. Maybe this morning, some of you need to hear the word of the Lord, that that our word from the Lord God this morning is to not be like Eli, to not sit and and to be content with just sitting and and to be content with with just attending and, and with just coming. As thankful as we are that you come and you sit in this beautiful room, friends, we want God wants. Jesus wants more. And no matter how young you are or how old you are, no matter your financial situation, whether you have plenty or whether you lack, whether emotionally you're, you're with it or emotionally you're not, wherever you are, God has called every single person in this room to be on mission for him, making disciples of all nations, teaching them and baptizing them in his name. Every single person in this room has a mission that we cannot sit still because it has so gripped us, because it has shaken us and captivated us. We, as a people, refuse to be like Eli, sitting by the seat of the road, watching, and notice what it says, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. I found that statement quite peculiar the first time I ever read it. You see, when we understand and we've read through and we read through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we understand that for the large portion of Eli's life, he failed to really revere and to care for and to treat the Ark of the Covenant in a way that it was worthy to be treated. In fact, he was indifferent and ignored the spiritual debauchery of of his sons and ignored uh, their apathy and ignored the ways that, that they defamed the name of the Lord and disregarded his holiness, and so I find it hard to believe that in this moment his heart was trembling solely for the ark of God, for Eli knew one thing. He knew that where that ark was, his two sons had also walked alongside that ark. And what we see here in this moment is a reminder, or rather a spiritual indictment on Eli's life, that he cared more about the well-being of his family, and rightfully so, we should care about our families, and nurturing our families, and providing for our families, and providing homes and places of refuge for them. But we must not care for our families and neglect what it is that God has called us to do as a people and to be on mission with him. And Eli's heart trembled before the ark of God. Eli's testimony and his legacy before us today is this idea that even godly men and women can lose the peace that God gives when they act in ways that are contrary to God's word. We can lose the inner peace that exists, the comfort of the Spirit of God, the blessing and the hand of God in our lives when we refuse to act in ways in which he has called us to, tightly bound to the Word of God and walking step by step. Eli's life lost his peace because he walked in ways that were contrary to what God had said. He, he sought safety and, and refuge rather than being a man of of faith and fortitude and perseverance. You see, for the believer this morning, our perseverance and our grit and our fortitude is determined first and foremost by the idea that Christ has radically saved us and redeemed us from our sins. And because he has redeemed us, we can walk as his children and we can walk forward and look to tomorrow because we know that he holds all of the tomorrows in his hands, Eli did not understand that. He knew that in his heart of hearts, God had promised that his two sons were going to die on that very day. He was not anxious for the ark in this moment, but rather he feared for his sons who were carrying that ark. The text goes on and it says, and when the man came into the city and he told the news in verse 13, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli, now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, well, how did it go, my son? And he brought the news, answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And it says his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel for 40 years. A tragic death, yes. Yes. But a fulfillment of a promise that God had made because of the sin of Eli and the sins of his sons. And God always holds true to his promises. Throughout the Old Testament, we often see God describe men and women being an older age. But what we shouldn't get used to and what we, we notice very rarely in particular in this particular instance where he says that Eli was not just old, but it says he was heavy. Now, at first glance, you would think it would be what most old men happen. They get old and bald and a little bit fat. I'm sorry some of you are offended by that. He got old. He got bigger. He lost his vision. He couldn't see. He couldn't move around. His knees hurt. He definitely wasn't running a marathon anytime soon. But when you look a little bit deeper at this word, heavy, it actually is a a root word out of a word kabod in in the Hebrew which literally means glory. And so there's some things going on that the author is doing saying yes, literally he he is a heavy man. But beyond that, there's something deeper there that God wishes to illustrate the spiritual impact of Eli's life, not only is he old and he is heavy, but when he dies, the glory of God departs from him. The priest, the intercessor, the mediator between God and and man, the the man who was supposed to stand before his people and and help atone and offer sacrifices for their sins, one of the most prestigious positions that one could certainly have. And here he was, fat and old and blind, barely able to move, and it says he died. And he lost his, his glory, if you will, The glory of Eli, we ask where that glory went. Well, in essence, it was just simply dead by the road of Shiloh. Eli reminds us of something else that I want to remind us of this morning, or rather the text does. You see, Eli's life can be laid on top of what Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, where God says, do not be deceived, he is not mocked, for whatever one sows That will he also reap. What we sow, we reap. What was true of Eli's life then, and what was true of Paul's life as he wrote to that church in Galatia, is true of us today. What we sow as a people, we will reap as a people. What we sow individually, we will reap individually. But Eli's life was ultimately tied to the way that he thought and and what he believed about God because he had a low view of God clearly in the way he acted about God. But ultimately, for the believer today in this room, the way to ensure that we don't become an Eli is to recognize that we are renewed as we come before God's Word and we listen to His counsel and we allow the Spirit of God to change us as a people, to humble us. And to mold us and and to shape us into the men and into the women that he wants us to be, into the church that he wants us to be. We are a people of the book, my friends. We will always be a people of the book. Believing wholeheartedly that every conviction, every principle, every action, everything we do, say and think and believe, that it needs to be driven from here, from what God has spoken in in great authority and with sufficiency for his people. And so we lean into this. We seek to understand it and to discern it and to apply the very best wisdom to oftentimes very gray spaces in life. But we're driven by that. Eli also would have recognized that the sins of his sons and God promising to punish here in this moment, and God rightfully did, as they took the ark, when they weren't commanded to take the ark, and they sought to do what was right in their own eyes as they sought counsel just amongst themselves, never consulting Samuel, never consulting the Word of God. But the text begins to shift, and we see this second movement at the end of chapter 4, though not unrelated to what we see here in verses 12 through 18. But we pick up reading in verse 19 where he says this. Now, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant. And she was about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were now dead, It says that she bowed and she gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, "'Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son.' But she did not answer or did not pay attention. And she named the child, Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. The association was that that ark, as talked about last week, that it was this representation, if you will, it was this box, this ark that was to be treated in such a consecrated and, and holy way and to be revered in, in every which way. And, and she understands that in this moment that losing that, that they forfeit the, the, the glory of God or the presence of God or, or rather the blessing of God amongst the people. And it was tied intimately to their having possession of that ark. And so she names the child in great despair, Ichabod, the glory has departed. I've visited with church members before, certainly not at this lovely church, that would describe others as just simply being Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. The presence of God is not felt or seen or or known amongst His people. And the reason that often is the case corporately and the reason that often is the case even individually It's because we allow moments of of sin and and even perhaps habitual sin, because of that, scenes of great joy and gratitude oftentimes turn into great scenes of grief and remorse because of our sin. Or when God's people fail to take an account of the the gravity of of their sin and and what that means before a holy and a righteous God and we we tend to, to look away from it or to look past it or we tend to... Minimize it. What causes God to remove the manifestation of his glory? This is the question of the text today and the simple answer in this moment. For the text, it was the episode of Eli's sons as he angered God through their sacrilege committed by his people in worship and and them not taking the holiness of God seriously. And so God punished his people. He punished his people. What causes God to remove his glory and his presence and his hand oftentimes is the sin that gets in the way and his people being unwilling to deal with it honestly. But friend, I want to tell you this morning... That though that be the case, though Eli didn't recognize that, though his sons didn't recognize that, and it certainly didn't seem like the family didn't recognize that, we as a people can recognize this truth that what is similarly taught here is also said in Isaiah 29, 13, where Isaiah says this about his people, this people, they draw near to me with their mouths, they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. They know what to say and when to say it and how to say it. They've got PhDs in systematic theology and biblical theology and New Testament Greek and Old Testament Hebrew and hermeneutics and homiletics. They understand soteriology and eschatology and all the of the world, and they can speak it with their lips and their mouths, but their hearts all the while are far from worship and far from him. False worship is a worship that despises God's holiness and is a cause for the removal of God's glory. This is what we see in 1 Samuel 4. But this week I thought of as well, and the question then becomes, how do we get it back? What, is, what causes it to be removed? But then what do we do as a people to, to get it back? And the prophet Zechariah says in 1.3, he says, return to me, says the Lord, and I will therefore return to you. Return to me. Simply come to me. Not on your terms, but on on my terms. Listen to me and respond to me. As God speaks, he demands a response from his people. He's that holy and he's that right and he's that true and he's that just. But then the question then comes as we return to him. God gives us an answer to the question of Ichabod, the glory of the Lord. You see, for you and I, our, our sin and, and understanding our sin, rightly so, our sin cries aloud, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed because of that sin. But he, friends, the good news of the gospel is this, is that God's grace replies in response to Ichabod, Emmanuel, God with us. God does not depart and leave and, and flee and, and leave us to our own choosing and wanting and, and waning, but rather God provides a way through Emmanuel, the name given to our Savior, meaning God, with us. Though we rightly and deservedly deserve to be abandoned, deserve to be punished, apart from because of our sins, but apart from Christ, the gospel assures us of forgiveness and acceptance by God through Christ. And so as the world cries out, Ichabod, the Lord has forsaken us. The message for the church and for us today in our culture, in our city, in our state, in our country, in the world is Emmanuel. God is with us. But some of you this morning perhaps are still living like Ichabod over your life. Could it be true that some of us, our testimony is that we live in such a way that it is seen and perceived that the glory of the Lord has departed from us? And I don't mean just outright sin and flagrant sin, though that could possibly be true. I I mean in the context oftentimes of of our attitudes and our countenance. I mean in how we talk to one another and how we speak about one another when others aren't present and we begin to talk and imply and insinuate. I mean those and that is the testimony of Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. Some of you need to be reminded this morning that God is Emmanuel. He is with us. He is with you even in the moments, even and especially in the moments of your deepest and darkest acts of sins and attitudes, he is still with us. And he is redeeming and he is saving his people. The gospel of Jesus answers Ichabod, God has left us with Emmanuel. God is with us. And my challenge to us this morning is to live like that is true. To not live as the glory of the Lord has departed us. He didn't leave us back in October and November. He doesn't leave us every four years or or every two years. God never leaves his children. He does not forsake us. But what is forsaken oftentimes is the heart and the attitude and the posture of his people that we forget that God's greatest gift to his people is himself, Emmanuel, Jesus. And so we as a people must live like that. For we have no other name that's worthy to be lived according to, no other reason to live that is more worthy than that. It is the gift of Emmanuel. And the scripture says that all those who would call upon his name would be saved. All of those who would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him up from the dead, to call upon his name, you will be saved. The gospel message is as simple as repent and believe. This morning, would you repent with me? Would you believe with me as we call upon our Savior in this place today? Amen.